When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is an organ of fire. I believe that. Named on over 80 top 10 lists. Hailed by critics as a cinematic triumph. Ray Fiennes, Kristen Scott Thomas, Willem Dafoe, and Academy Award winner Juliette Binoche. In a classic story of adventure, mystery, and passion. Promise me you'll come back for me. I promise. I'll come back for you. The English Patient. This is Adaptation Nation. It's a podcast where we read the thing, we watch the thing, we talk about the thing. Today I'm joined finally by Rebecca Shinsky. It's, it feels a little weird that you haven't been it on. Does. We haven't done this so far because we started this out of a, a, you know, a format that we did on the Book Riot podcast got this role and and kind of the way the cookie crumbled there was some high fantasy sci-fi not really your jam bond not really your jam amanda and i had to nerd out about the movie you'd watched on tnt in 1994 (laughs) we did the pelican brief (laughs) but finally i found something to rope you into and this has been a long time i've been we've been talking for a while about how you have prior to this you had um, no immunity to no exposure to the english patient um other than what was out there in the 90s and since you're a few years younger than I am, which I think kind of matters for when mm-hmm. this came out and where it hit in our particular lives. But the reason we're doing this is I've wanted to talk about this with, with someone forever. And I think I thought you would really like the book. But the other thing is, it's 25 years ago. We're just in Under the Wire that 25 years ago, since The English Patient, the film came out, which is, I mean, all of these anniversaries are kind of you know arbitrary. Why is it 24 versus 26? I don't need to explain anyone that to you. But 25 years seems a long time. And it's a real time capsule. As I've been doing my um, half half baked noodling and and googling and seeing what a time 1996 was. I was 18, graduating from high school, getting ready to go to college. I was um, primed to be susceptible to this material in a, a bunch of different ways that we can talk about. I'm guessing for you, it wasn't fun. Young enough, it wasn't Romeo and Juliet, the Lurman that came out right around the same time. But it also wasn't like a big classic. It was too, maybe too adult. Like it was like, for me, it was like the Prince of Tides, which came out in 93. It's like, what? That's boring. I mean, what, how, how is it? What was your experience of it at the time? And then how is it in this intervening years you've never returned or, yeah, or, or come around to it? That's a great question. And I'm curious if you, did you see it when you were 16 or 18? 18, 18? Yeah, 18? yeah. Michelle you and I went right to then. see it at Liberty Hall in uh, oh, the big theater what there a great in Lawrence, theater. Kansas. It's a great theater. It was a great time. We were newly dating teenagers you can see how oh boy. some of this was mm-hmm. um, interesting <laughs> uh, in a lot of different ways but enough about me <laughs> we can come back to that yeah please uh, let's don't. see so i was 10 when the book came out in 1992 mm-hmm. and then 14 in 1996 when the movie came out and i remember the hype around the movie i remember the oscars buzz yeah. and that my parents were talking about the english patient i'm pretty sure 
I remember my parents like leaving me and my sister home on a Saturday night so that they could go see the English patient with some friends. Um, I mentioned to them on the phone yesterday that I was watching this and we were doing this for the podcast and they remembered the hype and sort of that period of time. So that was interesting. But that was really just it. I had the impression that the adults around me thought this was a good kind of fancy thing. You know, like my childhood understanding of the Oscars was this is like high art, which is certainly not how I would describe all Oscar contenders at this point. But I definitely like that's what I soaked up about the English patient at the time. People talked about how long it was. And like I've mentioned on the Book Riot show that one of the only real things that I'm aware of and sort of the cultural not even zeitgeist because it's not current, but the the cultural stuff around the English patient is that Seinfeld episode where yes. everybody's going to see it and Elaine like really doesn't want to see it and then really hates it and it's so long. And I was surprised when I went to watch it and I was like, oh, it's two hours and 42 minutes, which is long, but that's only like so long in the world of pre-Peter Jackson, pre-Marvel. That's a great point. Two hours and 42 minutes in 1996 was a haul and not for nothing i remember this distinctly because it's michelle, one of michelle's and i favorite movies we watched together we watched it together for this time over the course of two nights because we don't have three hours after the kids go to bed that's responsible for the way we get up in the mornings these days anyway but famously it, the original home video release was two vhs's so you had to flip <laughs> the thing and the first one they timed it and I, I wish i could remember i should have marked it the first tape was 60 minutes so it oh, wasn't gosh. split evenly so it was split in such a way that you kind of only watch the same the second one, because you, you, as you know, the, the first is a lot of build up. Who's this? Uh-huh. Blah blah blah. And if you've seen it a million times, you want when Kip gets there. You want when mm-hmm. Caravaggio. You, you don't need all the build up. So on a rewatch, you're really watching oh. tape two of the English Patient. But you're right. I was struck by the runtime isn't that long. I actually, again, I'm a sot for this property writ large. So I'm right on the table. It doesn't feel that long to me. That the whole movie mm-hmm. doesn't feel that long to me. So that's a. That's another thing as well. I think it's so, I mean, when I was 18, this was right at the cross purpose point when I was really into pop culture, but then transitioning to be like a, a real like upper brow book nerd. Like I, in that, that same fall when this was in the hype cycle, you know, I was taking Shakespeare in college and having my first AP English courses and I was an insufferable jerk even more than normal <laughs> about what literature was and what the point of you know studying oh. and art and the feelings and everything. And so this the book especially, I read the book shortly after the movie came out. I did not, I did not read it in 1992, where it won the Booker Prize, by the way, um, and then was even more entranced by it because it's even more lit nerdy. Uh, yes. history nerdy, cultural nerdy stuff oh, man. in this the is, book itself. This was just must have been ripe for a freshly insufferable I couldn't believe it. English I couldn't major. Believe, I couldn't believe it. I was like, it's a combination of Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia and uh, Casablanca yeah. and uh, Herodotus all wrapped up into one. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, you know, I started high school in 97. And mm. at that point, I think we were reading some contemporary work, but this didn't make it onto the list. This was this would maybe I think could have been assigned to like a high school senior. I'm not sure how much I would have appreciated it at the time. I didn't come across it in college. I don't know if anybody at my college had it on their syllabi, but none of my English professors did. And I minored in English. So I had some opportunities to run up against this kind of stuff. It certainly feels like a book that could have been assigned for a class like that. And then it, by the time I was an adult, you know, like living on my own out of college and a serious reader and a serious consumer of 
TV and movies, especially, you know, adaptation, highbrow, these kinds of highbrow things, people had sort of stopped talking about it. Yep. Um, I And watching it, I think you're right that it's a real time capsule. It feels like a real snapshot of what media was like in 1996, what kinds of movies people were watching and were excited about then. Um, and I was re-listening to an episode of the Rewatchables recently about Rain Man and one of the yeah. hosts on that show made the point that like late 80s to up to like mid 90s, if you wanted to win an Oscar, the thing you did was play somebody who had a serious illness or disability. And watching Ray Fiennes in this film, I had that moment of like, oh, this was right in that moment yep. of media too. Like, this is what you do if you want to win an Oscar. You play a guy who's been badly burned and is lying in a bed and trying to piece his life back together and put his memory back together. And by the time it was like 2005 and i was fully cooked um that just wasn't the story that folks were interested in anymore and so i i think in my reading life i would have gotten to the book at some point this has been on my radar forever i'm not sure that i would have made it a point to watch the movie if we hadn't you know been Mm. sitting down to do this together yeah i think that's a really good point i think this was the um peak play someone with a disability Mm-hmm. year because the Academy Awards were Ray Fiennes. I mean, I'm not sure if he's runner up or not, but Jeffrey Rush won the Academy for Best mm-hmm. Actor in Shine where he plays, I guess now we'd call someone on the spectrum or on, on a severe side of an autism kind yeah. of spectrum, I think. And then Billy Bob Thornton won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which I'm still mad about. I think <laughs> Anthony Miguel the Sling Blade year? First, yeah, Sling Blade, um, which was basically playing someone with a mental disability that immediately turned into what we had for memes in the mid-90s of everyone doing their terrible Billy Bob impression. Um, I'm not going to do it now, even though it's really hard for me not to because we did it so often and and terribly and insensitively, and and we should banish that from our cultural experience um, at all. But you're right. And then, and, but Ray Fiennes plays someone who's been very badly burned, but his performance goes the other way, which is rather than Billy Bob and Jeffrey Rush kind of exuber, you know, exuberantly playing mm-hmm. differently configured people, let's put it that way. Ray Fiennes is really like reduced down. It's very yes. subtle. And I think, you know, one thing I didn't appreciate the time that I appreciated this time, I think he acts behind whatever they're putting him in unbelievably well because mm-hmm. he doesn't have much to do. Um, interesting in watching the credits. Uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop did the prosthetics for um, Ray Fiennes as he plays uh, the burned Kanomashi. Um So that's where, that's where we stand right now. I think the long history of the English patient is... I'm not sure there's much reason to pick up the book any... I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure because it did win the Golden Man Booker, which was the Booker Prize pulled its people it's fans or whatever you could go vote on all the all the books that won the booker prize and i think this happened five years ago and the english patient won it supplanted the uh midnight's children by salman rushdie which had won the previous two like at at year 15 and 20 or something like that and the head of the booker prize committee was asked is that because there's a movie and you know there's not a movie of midnight's children or Mm. at least one that not people know and she says well i don't i don't know that it hurts on the other hand a lot of people have read wolf hall and there's other one that's but I think the answer is, of the Man Booker Prize winners, the English Patient movie is the one that the kinds of people that vote in Man Booker online <laughs> polls have seen in light. You know, we, we've been around the block. We've done enough of this, what online polls look mm-hmm. like. It's the To Kill a Mockingbird of, of upper middle brow movie going, it's, I would say. It's more Not available. Yeah, it's more just available. more available as availability so. bias would go. I want to dispute the idea that there's not really a reason to pick up 
the English patient, like it's not out in the culture to, to go get nudged to read it these days, but this is a gorgeous well, fine. piece of writing. Yes, I would say that, <laughs> you, no, I, I think, I, I, no, 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 I, I want to say that, but I mean, in terms of if you don't know how good the book is, you look, the cover of the book you can get most places now is Fines and Kirsten Scott Thomas, like it's a clinch cover, for lack of mm. a better term. And that's fine, but I think people who want romance now read romance. And fellas like me were wrong, but we're not going to pick this up. And this right? book is not a romance. I'm going to. It's not. Well, the book is we not can a talk romance. About that. No, and neither is the movie Capital R Romance. Spoiler right. I guess we're going to spoil the living tar out of this book. That's but the you've point had of being here. Years, 20, 25 <laughs> years to get there. Um, I, I, you know, well, let's get into it just a minute. Let's do our first sponsor break. We'll come back and, and kind of focus on the book for a few minutes. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Michael Ndaje, um, who wrote The English Patient, uh, also won the Booker Prize for it. This is something I didn't know. That's a sequel of source to his, er, his, his previous novel called The Skin of the Lion, hmm. in which um, Han, Hannah's father is the main character, and Hannah and Caravaggio are in that book. If you come to the book second, one of the things you're going to notice right away is that Caravaggio and Hannah not just know each other before, but he's kind of like a uncle, sort mm -hmm. of family friend kind of person, which is very jarring. If you've had, like most people whose first experience was with the movie, but it makes a little more sense that that relationship is pre existing because it brings us um, from Toronto of the 1930s into um, what, North Africa, Italy of 1936 to 38. So it looks like pretty quickly the idea is Hannah leaves from the, that book. She's a secondary character. Her father's the main character of that book. We find out what happens to her father in this book. As a fan of the film first, you're like, why do I care that much about Hannah's dad? I mean, it's not even in the movie. Anyway, but it makes a little more sense to me now. Um, why? I think that's one thing where the movie's a little bit better is you don't need Caravaggio and Hannah to know each other. I think it's kind of better if they don't. And they the, the four main characters come together at this nexus of the world in this bombed out monastery um, with scant, if any, pre-existing um, relationship. Sold well right away. Sonny Mehta, our boy, acquired <laughs> this. I was reading the acknowledgments in, from Mondaje. I was like, oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, there he is as well. Good track record on that one. Anthony Minghella picked it up, who had had a couple of 
successful movies before, but this became his calling card. And then right after this, directed another really wonderful adaptation, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which maybe someday we'll get oh, around yes. to. Uh, for, Sign the, me up that, for that one. The adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel starring Matt Damon and my introduction to Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's unbelievable mm-hmm. in um, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Critically, it was a success. Um, Man Booker Prize is nothing to sneeze at. This is one of the... Booker Prize winner, Best Picture Oscar, not a long list, Rebecca Shinsky. It's not. It's not a long list. I went back and read the original New York Times review of this and the first Publishers Weekly review yeah. of it just to see, like, was this agreed as a big thing before the Booker Prize? Because sometimes mm-hmm. we get books that, especially with the Booker in the U.S., where the book is just sort of ignored by English or by American uh, yeah. book media and then when it wins an award people pick it up but these were sort of immediate jumping on how great this book is and uh, lots of sort of bordering on purple prose from the reviewers about, <laughs> <laughs> about trying to capture how beautiful Ondaatje's writing in the form of this book is that was really interesting to me just I think in general award-winning literature plus Oscar-winning best film is pretty uncommon like the stuff that gets adapted into film that becomes really popular at Mm -hmm. least in my memory you know my more adult life memory of those things is stuff where it's like highbrow commercial fiction um that like John Irving Cider House Rules you know I don't think that point I don't think that won any major literary awards I would have to go back and and google but World According to Garp was nominated for best adapted screenplay I think Robin Williams I mean Mm -hmm. just not to use rules but but, to use the Irving yeah, but you got that really? Irving sort of upper middle brow yeah. um, land of commercially appealing book clubs are going to read these books and talk about them. But so are just sort of people who fancy themselves literary, but it's not like capital L literature. And I, I think there's a case for the English patient as capital L literature. I that, think so, too. That that's so too. a tough jump. M- movies are so have such a big audience and such a like wide swath of people to try to appeal to. And it's a tough leap to go from Booker Prize winning capital L literature to mm-hmm. movie that can appeal to enough people to like get people sort of on the train for winning the Academy Award for it. And I think that has a that has to do with a lot, probably influenced a lot of the decisions that were made in adapting it from the book to the film and some yeah. of the changes that happened. Yeah, if you read, and again, it's impossible for me to get to a place where I can imagine having read the book without having seen the movie. And you, if you, but assuming I read it and like as much as I do now, or like as much as about the um, the purple prosers did, <laughs> hard to imagine a great crowd. I mean, the movie did really good business. People really liked this movie when the time enough that it was a thing that Seinfeld could talk about, and people got the joke, right? I mean, I think that's probably the biggest mm-hmm. praise you can get in terms of cultural consciousness. But looking at the book as is, it's much more experimental. It's much more interior. It's much more ruminative. It's much less romantic. It's much less dramatic. And the ending is much more evocative rather mm-hmm. than, I don't know, um, whatever we can talk about the ending of the movie. It's just less It's it's less friendly to your parents and mine, the kinds mm-hmm. of people that would go see it um, and see it in enough places to make it a commercial success. And I think... I understand the main difference, we could talk about it here, which is really shifting the camera to 
um, Catherine and um, the Count Laszlo, though no one calls him Laszlo, Amashi and, and Catherine, and doing less with Kip and Hannah because their relationship in the book is, I mean, literally there are scenes of them sitting in the dark together, not talking, and that's them bonding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very, very tough for cinematographer <laughs> to make fascinating. She takes a great nap in a field with him. Unbelievable naps. And they invent a scene, which is a wonderful scene in the movie that's not in the book, to give them something dynamic to do together, because famously in the book as well, they don't sleep together. And they do in the movie, or at least I think we're supposed to think mm-hmm. they do. Uh, poor Kip is... Um, well, blue balled, uh, and we get lots of descriptions about what happens to him during the nighttime while they are sleeping next to each other. Um, I have commentary on the sex writing in this. Yeah, book, the, but we can get to that. Whatever you want to say, but they, but in order, it is a, it is a tragic romance. That is the the movie is a tragic romance with wonderful side characters. Whereas the book itself is more of a character. It's more like the Decameron, really, where these people find each other in this place, and they're getting to know each other. And the most the most vibrant present tense relationship of the book is Hannah and Kip, mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating. You get a lot more Kip backstory, you get a lot more Hannah backstory, and you just get a lot more of them. And the book ends with them dreaming about each other's future, right? I think it was a really mm-hmm. fascinating way to end the book. So that's the principal difference. Outside of that, though, I would say it feels like a movie a lot, even just the, the focus pulled a little bit differently. It's much more highbrow. Um, the book. It is much mm-hmm. more capital L literature, and I think intentionally so. Like we're, we're, we're referencing Tacitus and Herodotus family, and, and a lot of talk about Anna Karenina, and there's one throwaway thing in, in the movie, and Cicero, and all these different places, and international multilingual stuff happening, which brings me to Andaje, which we don't have to linger too long, but a fascinating guy, mm-hmm. born in what what is now called Sri Lanka, which is then called Ceylon, um, to Dutch... Uh, I can't remember the the name, but there's a, a local ethnic population, these Indo-Aryans, that resist. I mean, that's one interesting about this book and then on Dodge itself. Resist American racial binaries in a way that we're familiar with. Let's put it that way, I think, is the best way to put mm-hmm. it. The book itself is very, very interesting, as is the movie, about really troubling this idea of you belong here and you're one of those and I'm one of these, right? Um, one of the things the book is interested in is all of these people are displaced, but for one brief moment, they become a community, and it happens multiple times. Um, the, Kip and his group of sappers, Hannah and her nurses, um, Amashi and the International Sound Club, Caravaggio with the British intelligence forces, and then them all together uh, in the villa, and these ad hoc, I guess the, almost the term we'd use now, colloquials found family, but it's much more complicated than that. And then the other thing, Rebecca, I think the thing I knew you would respond to right away, and I'm going to pass the mic to you here, is that on the level of the sentence, Ugh. it's an extraordinary book. It is. It is so beautiful. And I found myself, when, when I'm reading for one of these kinds of episodes, I, you know, I'm reading with a pen in my hand, and I'm taking notes and thinking about ultimately, what are the pieces that are going to come out when we talk about it? And I noticed that even from like page three, I was underlining things. We didn't know anything. You know, you're, you're three pages in. You know nothing about... And you hadn't seen the movie. We should tell... People should know right. you read the book first and you hadn't yes. seen the movie except that you sort of had a mental model of like right. kind I, of a trailer understanding what the Right. Movie was. I had... I knew that it had something to do with like a tumbling down. I thought it was a castle, not a villa, but like close mm-hmm. enough. Some like rundown castle somewhere and that Ray Fiennes was like bandaged up in a bed and that there was a nurse care. I, yeah. You know, that was the gist. Um, that's all I knew. And just 
if you flip through my paper copy of it now, there are underlines all over the place. Um, just, I mean, just really beautiful sentences. And, you know, the characters get to observe interesting things about themselves um, through Ondaatje's writing and then just things about the world. But there's, you know, one of my favorite lines I've got noted for our best lines mm. portion, but um, here they were shedding skins. They could imitate nothing but what they were. There was no defense but to look for the truth in others. And I was like, oh, that's the whole thesis of the book. Mm. And it's pretty close to the end, but just summed up so carefully and other you know really small things there's a lot of great stuff about books um hannah is reading last of the mohicans and she's you know recovering from this great trauma of having been a nurse out in active war and is sitting alone in the villa reading while almashi is sleeping before caravaggio and kip show up and he lets her think this was the time in her life that she fell upon books as the only door out of her cell. Mm. Um, and then after everybody's gathered at the house, they've, their life was foraging and tentative safety. Um, and then Hannah has a moment, I think later on, that I really loved that also feels like a thesis of the novel. The deepest sorrow where the only way to survive is to excavate everything. Mm. And mm. it's just packed yeah. With stuff like that. I mean, and here's one. One of my favorites, Hannah waking up from that nap in the field with Kip, which is kind of a strange moment in the book. They ha- He's, you know, disarmed a bomb and she's worried about him. And they're like out under this tree and she falls asleep on him. And like she's out like a light and wakes up a while later. And Ondaatje writes that she could not forget the depth of her sleep, the lightness of the plummet. And I think that was it. That happens pretty early in the book. And I was like, just take me now, Michael Ondaatje. The lightness of the plummet? Are you kidding me? Like, well, I should say now, and, and right, that's the kind of line that may give you some inclination, but Ondaatje's first like five books were books of poetry. So that's <sighs> kind of mm-hmm. where we're coming from here. And he layers on it a really, it's not a long book. I think people would be surprised. It comes in right at, for a long movie, it's a short book as these things go. Um, but he layers on a fascinating mm-hmm. character arrangement. And and let's just say a page turnery story fragmented to keep you guessing because yes. you don't know what's happening. It's The book is really more of a mystery than yes, anything else. Yeah. That And he's weaving in and out. I think he weaves in and out of a couple genres within the book mm-hmm. um, itself. But we weave in and out of the past and the present and into from the the present into a bunch of different pasts. He does kind of a thing that I'll talk about this more when we talk about like a future adaptation or another stab at this, but it feels like you can imagine sort of a lost version of this where it's like, here's the present, here's a flashback into this person's life. Here's the present again, a flashback into this other character's life, but he does it more subtly and in some and without warning sometimes that we're shifting where we are there's so much trust for the reader it's really fluid and um, i found you used the word interior earlier and that was in my notes as well like the book has a really a, a real interiority to it we are in the characters heads and in their hearts there's like not a lot of action and not a lot no. of dialogue we watch them do some things but that was my biggest open question after having read the book was how are they going to capture this quality of being in these people's interior lives and put it on the screen. And that's pretty much answered by, well, they're going to turn the movie into a love story. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, yeah, 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 it does. I think it makes sense. I'm not sure that 
again, if I'm a huge fan of the book already, is this the version I want on screen? Maybe not. We can talk about that with what else you could do with this. But I think it makes sense to turn mm-hmm. into a commercial property. Um, that sounds like damning with faint praise, but it's not. I think it's a wonderful screenplay. I think F- Fines and Kristen Scott Thomas are goddamn electric on the screen mm-hmm. together. And, and Benoche and Naveen Andrews, who I think is good, are just, they're wattage. Some of it is what the movie does, but I think you, you, can't, you can't control chemistry on screen. And Hannah and Kip... They feel more like friends, I have to say, in the movie, which is fine, but it makes sense. And maybe that's, you know, there's a little chicken in the egg situation there, too. But the movie went to where the heat was, um, mm-hmm. n- no pun intended, the desert falling in love and carrying each other around and crying. Um, <laughs> but but it, it just, it's just more cinema, it's, it's, more cine, it's more cinematic, I should say. Um, and, but... There's some there's some consequences that we'll take. Let's let's talk about what like the the book is about. So the plot is, you know, basically a, a tragic romance. Um, Kirsten Scott Thomas and um, Ray Fiennes fall in love. Kirsten Scott Thomas is married. Long, you know, her husband takes vengeance on them, and things bad things happen. But putting it like that, I think, makes me so angry just to say that like that, because <laughs> that's incredibly re- reductive, really not what it's about, even though I think that's what propels. The, that's the that's the narrative around which all the other narratives of place. And that's one of the things it's about. It's about storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's about connecting pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, do, do we have five hours to do on Herodotus, Rebecca? I mean, yeah, I'm not sure what your schedule looks <laughs> I gotta like say- for the rest of the day. I abstained from Googling Herodotus in case you had some material, I thought. Yeah. No. Well, the book is about a character who carries around Herodotus. And Herodotus looms both large and is in the book itself. And I think the most seductive to me sequence is when Catherine Clifton has first joined Count Amashi and his little group of explorers, map makers, cartographers, who are putting down a map of North Africa. And... Supposedly, the reason that um, Amashi, um, Ray Fine's character, carries Herodotus is it's as good as a guide to North Africa at the time as is out there. And this is a book at this point that's <laughs> 2,000 years old. North Africa, this place like kind of between um, Alexandria to the east, and I guess really all the way to, boy, I don't know, Tobruk, um, to the west is desert in this Libyan desert. The movie shot in Tunisia. It looks a lot like Star Wars. I was like, oh, yeah, they shot it around the same time where they shot Star Wars in Tunisia. Um, Not that I know that much about different North African locales. Anyway, so Catherine Clifton gets brought in because her husband's a pilot, brings a plane, and they're going to take aerial photographs. And they're newly married. um, And she comes along because he wants to show her off. Also, I think she wants to come. She's... She likes him. Is she in love with him? She's ready for something else already. Not a great scene, as these things tend to go. And so to entertain themselves at night, they sit around a fire. And they spin a bottle. And if the bottle points to you, you've got to entertain the group for a few minutes. And I think it's telling that in the book, this isn't in the movie. I don't think this is in the book. When it Mm -hmm. hits Colin Firth, Jeffrey Clifton, he has sings, yes, we have no bananas, in a very broad kind of like public school boy way. And when it spins to Catherine, not something I noticed as a kid, she has at the tip of her tongue a story from Herodotus that mm. the Count carries. She's seducing him or mm-hmm. saying there's something else going on here. Tells the stories of Candelos and Gyges, which in short is Candelise, I should say. Candelise, as um, Amashi corrects <laughs> Hannah as she's reading it, is the king who has the most, he thinks he has the most beautiful wife in the world. 
though at that time in this place you would keep your wife if you were the king kind of cloistered so no one can see it but he's like he kind of can't live without everyone know anyone knowing how beautiful he was says the guy jesus i've got this spot you can go take a look at her and we can go talk about how beautiful he is not a great look for our boy <laughs> Condoleezza, but that's what happens the queen discovers gaiji sitting there and says to him well you got two choices you can either kill yourself because you've seen what you have not seen or you can kill my husband and become queen and become my husband not a hard choice if you're Gaiji's, the most beautiful <laughs> woman saying, you want to be king and, you know, share a sack? That's cool. <laughs> Gaiji's kills uh, Kendalese and rules Libya for 28 years. That's the story. So it's the story of a woman being put on display who hates being on display and is interested in someone else in the room. She tells that story around the fire. And this is my favorite paragraph in the whole thing. Um, this is Amashi remembering and narrating. It's a little hard what's his memory and what he's actually narrating to Caravaggio or Hannah while he's... Uh, under the influence of morphine or just talking. But here, here's the paragraph. This is a story of how I fell in love with a woman who read me a specific story from Herodotus. I heard the word she spoke across the fire, never looking up, even when she teased her husband. Perhaps she was just reading it to him. Perhaps there was no ulterior motive in the selection except for themselves. It was simply a story that had jarred her in its familiarity of a situation, but a path suddenly revealed itself in real life. Even though she had not conceived it as a first errand step in any way, I am sure. Um, unbelievable mm. stuff all the way around. Herodotus, I mean, what are we going to say? The father of history, mm-hmm. um, born in Halicarnassus, which is an island which is off the coast of what is now Turkey. Um, the histories, interestingly, I think that plurality is interesting. Now we would call it the history, but he... And I think um, Ondaji would agree that history is not one narrative. It's not just one story. It's a bunch of them put together, and they intersect and conflict um, and fall in parallel to each other. Wanted to, and it's a great first line. There's a very different translation, but basically Herodotus says, I'm, this, is this, this is a manuscript put down by Herodotus of Halicarnassus so that the passage of t- time may not wear away the great deeds of men on both sides of the great war between the Greeks and the Persians. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 a, it's a book about not forgetting, about humanity not forgetting these huge events that had happened. And he starts with prehistory, the time of legend of myth. He starts with the Trojan War and carries it all the way up through several hundred years of history to the present day of his own action. So it's really trying to bring the past into the present to protect it. And that's what's happening in the book, right? Amashi and these people are trying to bring their stories into the present so that the Sand Club is not forgotten. Catherine Clifton is not forgotten. Hannah's father is not forgotten. Caravaggio's, the violence against Caravaggio is not forgotten. Um, Kip's uh, mentor in the book especially is not forgotten, but his friend who gets blown up by a bomb is not forgotten. And, you know, in, in Greek, histoi means research, right? And what Herodotus did that was new was he went around and talked to people in all these different places. What, how did you hear this one? What, what's your understanding and what do you know? And he went all around the Mediterranean to piece together all these huge events. And it's our oldest extant um, prose document in Greek. So it's a hugely influential, and even if it wasn't influential, a wonderfully fascinating document that combines literature and history and anthropology. Herodotus would sail around the Mediterranean telling stories for money um, and became a raconteur. Thucydides famously <laughs> apparently sat at his feet listening to a story and started crying. Um, through cities who would then come to write the history of the Peloponnesian War and enter in a more modern sense of like reportage kind of history because Herodotus would also include stories that maybe he knew weren't quote-unquote real, but they mattered. Um, 
anyway, that's that's my Herodotus, and I think that idea of the the stories mattering, um, and then going around and finding them, and then also not wanting things to be forgotten, because then you get so much of that throughout the book, the Cave of Swimmers, and things get pasted into notebooks and all, maps, like. The documentation of experience is so fascinating to see. That's one of the things that I'm I'm super interested in. Well, I don't know. Rebecca, anything there you want to jump off on? Where are you want to go next after, <laughs> well, after my I, soliloquy on Herodotus? Yeah, I do not have a soliloquy on Herodotus, but the book made me think so much about the construction of memory and the retelling of stories and how that shapes our memories of things. You know, I don't think that Ondaatje was necessarily thinking about it explicitly when he wrote this but we know now that every time you remember something you reshape Mm -hmm. the memory of it and there's some of that going on here too and then this wonderful tension between the pain of the things you remember and the pain of the things you can't remember and the Mm -hmm. question of not necessarily what's better like he tells us you have to excavate everything but Almashi is tortured both by things he remembers and by things that he can't remember Yet Hannah is tortured by things that she remembers, but there's no way to unremember them or unknow yeah. those experiences. Kip is as well, and Caravaggio is tortured by memories, but also like uh, Almashi is physically marked forever um, by in an irrevocable way by the experience. And that I think as they tell the stories about the thing that happened to them and how they ended up with those wounds, whether they're physical or emotional wounds we see so much about there's just so much about the human experience here like i I sat a lot with why is this book so powerful like Mm. why is it such an why is it such a compelling experience to sit in this tumbled down villa with these four strangers who one of them doesn't know who he is the other one of the one of the other ones is suspicious of him and is drugging him in the book you know caravaggio is pumping almashi full of morphine to try to get him to confess what he thinks almashi's secret is and then we've got kip who sees danger all day long and hannah who has seen all kinds of things as a nurse like why is it so compelling to watch them mm. draw each other's stories out but also give each other the space to discover those things. And I think that feeling is universal and human and relatable of not wanting to look at the thing, but having to know the answer. And that neither of those is a particularly good feeling. It's not necessarily that things are better. Mm. Once you've remembered, I don't know that Almashi is like happier um, by the end of the movie when he's constructed these memories. Um, But that's it's kind of beside the point, I think, yeah, <laughs> of what right. Ondaatje is getting to. That it just matters that we know. It just matters that we know what happened, so that we can take it forward and look at, and understand how we got here. Like so much of the characters is trying to understand the things that destroyed them, in service of being able to create something new or to feel whole in some way. There's so much longing, and there's so yeah. much sense that these are people that are defined by their secrets or defined by their past defined by either the things they can't remember or the things they can't forget and just what do you do with that is mm-hmm. a really foundational human question even if we yeah. haven't lived through war and Ondaatje just handles it all so he handles it so brilliantly and if there's you know having read the book before the movie and I think the book holds up better over time probably if you weren't a person who was attached to but i agree with you yeah Yeah, if you weren't a person who was attached to the movie first like i can totally see how 
if you saw this when you were 18 with your girlfriend who became your partner in life, this yes. becomes a thing that's a touchstone for you. There were some scenes that I was like, oh, if I had seen this when I was 16, that would have been formative. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much. So I think your point about how they come together and why is it so appealing? I think there's a couple ways of maybe peeling that back or, or maybe some theories about what might happen. You know, and Dodgy's very interested in the the importance or lack thereof of where you came from and the nation mm-hmm. and the state and the building and the institution. Like they are in ruins and they're in the ruins of Italy. They're in the ruins of this building and they are in a lot of ways in the ruins of their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you're in the ruins, what remains are, are the people, right? What remains then is the connection between people. And so with all the other stuff stripped away, cut away, blown away, taken away, what remains is, you know, they're all live wires, I guess is one way to put it. They all are very open and exposed, which allows for connectivity to happen in a way that it doesn't Mm -hmm. if you're in the middle of an empire or you're in the middle of a great group of people. Um, It's a World War II novel that's weirdly uninterested in World War II, Uh uh, which is fascinating. None of these are Germans or um, none of the our main four characters are Germans or English people, right? Which are the two sort of they're Canadians, which are like not Americans or British people, right? They're Hungarians, which was an Axis power. Um, and then uh, uh, Kip is a Sikh from India. So he's a colonial subject of the crown in India serving the British interests around the world. And Ondaje is really saying like, look. Look, if you just look at them together, strip away everything else. And Amashi makes it plain. What do you hate? Um, uh, Kirsten Scott Thomas, I'm going to use them interchangeably. And he says ownership. Ownership. Of, of being owned. And a way of being owned is having your identity stamped upon you. And he sees why that's dangerous later, right? When he has to give his name and he tells the truth and he pays for it. Because like, well, that's a Hungarian. The Hungarian are access. And we're going to take you, Fritz von Bismarck, back to this other place. And he has to do some terrible things. And that's maybe the great um, traumatic moment of his life, but they're all then wondering, what are my place in all of this? And for a moment, their place is there together. For a brief mm-hmm. moment, yeah. that's where their place is. You know, to go back to Ondaatje really wanting to get at where are you from and does it matter or not? That's one of the things that I understand why it's lost really between in the translation between the book and the movie, but it was something that was really surprising in a wonderful way to me about the book that there's a lot of conversation about race and color on the page there's a lot of conversation about colonialism there's a moment near the end of the book where kip is saying you know that we after the bombing in um hiroshima and nagasaki you know that we you know your country wouldn't have dropped bombs if that weren't a a brown country you wouldn't have done this to white people Mm. and there's some line i'm paraphrasing but like He says, you know, I'm not an Englishman. And Kip responds like, well, anytime you start dropping bombs on brown nations, you're an Englishman. Englishman. And that feels still very current and relevant. And to think about the book being almost 30 years old, that Ondaatje was ahead of his time in putting those kinds of conversations into a work of literary fiction in a way that holds up, the commentary there holds up 30 years later. And I was surprised to encounter it. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, I totally understand why they didn't want to weave in a bunch of reflection about colonialism and racism into a movie that they were (laughs) trying to have made into an epic love story that's an Oscar contender. I think a remake might 
hold more of that material um, and address it as something that popular audiences are more interested in now than they were in 1996. But he does, he just, he's doing a lot of work here about things that aren't the interiority of the characters. And there's so much going on with the interiority of the characters (laughs) too, that it's just really masterful to be able to work at all of those levels. Yeah, and the, I think that's interesting too to to think about one of the things that gets sidelined. There's 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 a little bit of it in the movie of when they're reading Kipling and um, Kip pushes back a little bit about the guns being there. Those those mm-hmm. were found. Those were fired upon my people. You get just a little taste of it, but there is a very much like the setting matters in a in a huge way. But it it, it just eludes a very by the numbers North American, you know, especially white understanding of world racial politics, right? That where they are is both North and South. It's both East and West. Um, in, an, in a sort of ham-handed American mind, if you're born in Turkey, you're Persian. And if you're born in Italy, you're white, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what this world is. It's, it's not that simple by any stretch of the imagination. And then just as North and South and East or West are kind of overlapping and you know coexisting, so does the past and the present and the future. You know, Amashi crashes in a plane and is saved by ancient Bedouin healing techniques, you know, ground up peacock feathers and old languages and old methods mm-hmm. of surviving in the desert. Like it's all, it's, it's, you know, it's like the past, you know, Joyce says the past isn't even dead. It's not even past. Um, oh, it's Faulkner. Pardon me. No. Joyce. I think it's Joyce. It might be Faulkner quoting Joyce is the one I remember. It doesn't matter. Here, it's like there is no difference between the past and the present. The past ain't even past. It's still here. So is the present. So is the Mm -hmm. future. You know, we get needles of morphine and we get ground peacock bones. Um, We get the cave of swimmers and we get um, playing Bach on a piano. Um, And then maybe the most current culture, like all the way from the cave of swimmers to the popular culture of the day in the form of the great American songbook that everyone's singing the whole time. Like it's all mashed up together. There's no difference. There's no high, low, there's no before, there's no after, there's no older, there's no newer, there's no better than no worse. Um, And that kaleidoscopic open heartedness, open mindedness, open souledness to that truth um, is something that doesn't age. I think for me, Mm -hmm. especially still feels new, still feels radical. Um, yes, yeah, way. I think that's wonderfully put. And I was thinking in the opening, watching the opening scenes of the movie and watching the Bedouins, you know, heal Almashi and care for him and chant, but watching these brown people in, you know, in Africa in robes and turbans chanting, I thought, oh man, they made this movie like kind of just in mm. the nick of time, like culturally. Yeah, great. Five years later. Yeah, five years later. What happened in the way that culture addressed brown people in general um, after 9-11 became really horrible. And there was not humane treatment of people from those parts of the world in Engl- in a lot of English-speaking media. And I think if they hadn't made this adaptation pre-2001, it probably doesn't get made until like 2020, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. That's really um, until there was a real shift back to understanding humanity of people and not telling one story. And then also the reinterrogation of what happened um, in 2001 and the ways that culture and the, you know, administration responded at the time. But I was like, Oh, right. You know, I was 
18 in 2001 when 9-11 happened. Mm. And so I have some memory of seeing, you know, Middle Eastern and African characters in media before that, but not a whole lot. And it was surprising in a way that I didn't love encountering this really humane treatment Mm. that just acknowledged culture and humanity. Like they weren't secretly bad guys. These were just Bedouins in the desert who found a guy who crashed a plane and they were caring for him. And it it was also not extraordinary. It was this is, you know, like, they're people, he's a person, this is what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something that really comes, I mean, the Herodotus and Daji, and then through those lenses, Amashi himself, one thing that gets lost post-2001, if it ever existed before, Mm -hmm. is the specificity and diversity of the Arab, North African world. And in one scene where it's both in the book, it's it's framed a little bit differently, but Amashi is recounting the different names for different winds that Mm -hmm. exist all over the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. and Africa. He's naming all these specific winds and cultures and belief systems and legends. And it just, it's just really uncovering that diversity there that he really respects. He wants to know all of it. He, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the, one of the things that Ondaji does is there's, there's contrapasso for everyone, which means everyone gets reversed. You know, the great rememberer, Omashi, Mm -hmm. is the great forgetter. The great lover of water, Catherine Clifton, dies in the desert. Um, Kip, the great undoer of bombs, is undone by the biggest bomb that has ever been dropped. Caravaggio, the thief, um, offers gifts in the form of eggs and forgiveness. Hannah, the great nurse, the caretaker of life, in the movie especially, ultimately, you know, helps um, Amashi, learns that keeping someone alive is not the best thing you can do with them. So mm-hmm. that kind of back and forth inversion is part of trying to grapple with complexity in a way that just doesn't throw up your hands and say, well, it's just all a mess, right? That's not what the book is doing because you could easily do <laughs> yeah. that, right? It's everything's you a mess. You could. And I am subject to that sometimes, maybe this year especially or, you know, the last five. Everything's a Relatable. mess. I'm going to go play video games or, you know, listen to books about Trader Joe's. But <laughs> this is saying that the mess is, that's what it is. There is no thing that's not the mess. Anything that's not, anything that's not a mess is a, is a, is a fiction, that's saying there's one history when there's multiple multiple histories. It's Herodotus's lesson of there are histories here, not just mm-hmm. one through line. Yeah. I, um, anyway, I anything think else before we get into less good things? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that I preferred the mm. book and, and often prefer the book, but not always to the film, is that there's more space in the written word for that messiness. I think we're seeing more grappling with it and a lot more appetite for it in movies and TV in the last couple of years. And I am deeply here for that. But it's more common to see something that's non-linear in kind of all senses right. <laughs> um, right. in in literature. And I really appreciated that about Ondaatje that it's, we were talking on the Book Riot show recently about um, Rilke and living the questions. And this book to me feels like a 300 page invitation to do that. You just are dropped into these characters and their experience. And they literally have a lot of questions about their lives, but those questions raise big questions about life Mm. and what we're doing here and the ways in which we are connected and do these, as you were talking about, do these lines between nations mean anything and what do they mean? Um, Does where you're from mean something and what does it mean? Um, What do relationships mean? What does our past mean? And being able to push folks into that. There's something about the interiority, I think, of the reading experience that lends to that better than yeah. than watching other people just you know embody an action on the screen as well, but not a bad adaptation. Yeah. Okay, let's run through a couple of um, quick hitters. Um, 
the the less good part, the sex writing you say in the notes are can border on florid. The less said, the better for mm-hmm. many different reasons. For me, <laughs> do you want to say anything else other than that? It was just the one part of the book that was really notable to me. Of like, I had the that moment of like, did did people ever think this way about the sex they were having in this language? And re- and back in you know 1940 was not that long ago. It was hard mm-hmm. for me to imagine. It does it just borders on Florida. I loved the relationship between Hannah and Kip, but some of the moments that they have are just it just felt a little over the top Mm. um it's hard to do good sex writing and i think notoriously literary writers are like not great Mm -hmm. at it um that's such a visceral physical experience it's not really an interior thing you can intellectualize and describe in a way and it, it was just too much for me that there I just is a had certain some amount of like, there is a certain much. amount of poeticizing that yeah. feels like clinical and then that can feel weird right i mean i think yes, that's where we land yeah. then, then you're trying to cover over that clinicalness with language choices which then almost feels like you're, you're not comfortable with it so you're dancing around on top of it with language um to some degree i agree there's not a whole lot of it to be honest but when it's there mm-hmm. um you're not like eh, this is not the most strong part best character hannah is the star Um, of the show for sure has the most to do she has the most connections with the other people in the present time of the book like she's then she's really the 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 spoke uh, um, excuse me the hub around the spokes of the rest of the men in the book really revolve Um, her sensitivity her interest her kindness her toughness is attractive to the men in in many different ways yeah I kind of resented for Hannah that she didn't get to do more (laughs) in the movie. She's so interesting in the book. And I wanted to know more about Catherine. I loved the idea that she was this young wife who maybe thought that she was fine with like dopey, overeager Colin Firth. And I am delighted to watch Colin Firth get cuckolded in this movie. What a wonderful, (laughs) what what wonderful bravery on Firth's part to be the doofy cuckold who then turns into a murderous pilot. Like, yes, like don't send me your emails in defense of Colin Firth, but I'm not the biggest fan and I liked watching this happen to him. Yeah. And I would have, I don't know, when this hits public domain, whenever it hits public domain someday, if somebody wants to imagine more about Catherine's backstory, mm. I loved the image of this woman like finding herself in this place she probably never expected to be out in the desert with this group of map makers and meeting someone like Almashi and discovering that she had some more self-exploration to do and some more adventures to have and that there was more beyond the life that she thought she was signing up for with him um, and how she is seduced by all of the ways that that's appealing. But I, I just felt like Hannah got slighted in the adaptation and I understand the decision to make this about the love story, but that character is so interesting and she she wins it for me. I would I want to know the most about Hannah. I also really loved the Kip character. Like if if I were going to redo it, I think I would shift the lens and spend more time with Hannah and Kip. Yeah, and I think the the movie tries. We're going to move to the adaptation here mm-hmm. a little bit. Is the the movie Hannah Hannah's on the page is just doing a lot more thinking and watching, which is hard in movie. And they try to give her some more scenes, especially early in the book. There's scenes where she's being a nurse, you know, on the road. She has mm-hmm. a friend. They're trying to give her some more stuff to do or more screen time or more backstory that you get in the form of her thinking in the book. It's just very hard to do interiority. So they have to pull mm-hmm. that out. As you pull that out, it makes it much more plotty. You know, it's just one of the, I think that's a real medium 
artifact yes. of book versus movie. I, th- I think that's very much mm-hmm. th- For sure. the case. Um, one more sponsor break, and we'll really get into the movie here. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We did some of the backstory here. This was, I think, the height of the indie, independent film being mass culture moment. Yes. Um, shepherded have to mention, by Miramax in the form of Harvey and Bob Weinstein. We don't have to dwell on that, but that's you got to also say that at this point, that that's other thing in the background here. Notable adaptation, I mean, it was, we don't see movies that win nine Oscars anymore, um, kind of up true. and down the, the road. It's a beautiful production. I mean, I, I was, Michelle and I were talking about it. It's like, it's a wonderfully beautiful adaptation but I also think deserts just look great on screen. I mean, that's one of my takeaways after watching Dune recently and being a huge Star Wars fan. It's like, the desert just looks awesome. <laughs> it, it looks, looks great. The desert yeah. in space. Yeah, yeah, except, yeah, the desert at least glows. I mean, the darkness of space, we can forget about that now. That'll give me the creeps. But, like, there's something about just looking over sand in the sun that feels like it matters, right? It's just all, all, already you're like, yeah, this is tough, and there's something else. Yeah, the stakes um, are high. Going on here. The production design. Can we talk about desert wear for a second? What about <laughs> desert wear is great. Can we bring this back? I'm huge fans of this. Really great cargos. A lot of loose fitting shirts on the top. Really great shoes. Um, as you know, uh, I'm always interested in hair. Wonderful hair <laughs> through the whole that. thing. Ray finds yeah. hair when he's in the oh. flashbacks. Unbelievable. I mean, finds is just a smoldering just, ball of hawkish. <laughs> You know, alpha whateverness that's going there on. There are just giant bold letters in my notes for this that say "That's smolder." Oh my god! <laughs> the smoldering. You know, it did. I love. I also love the desert wear and those yeah. like knee length linen shorts that unbelievable Ray is running around. It occurs to me that those are not more than like a hop, skip, and a jump away from those knee length pleated khakis that Meg Ryan wears in When Harry Met. It's Sally. the '90s, baby. You can see like like Defoe has maybe frosted tips in this. Did you notice that either? <laughs> yeah. Like maybe yeah, he did a, a little bit. There's a moment where Defoe is in Almashi's bedroom and he's wearing a suit. Like he's like getting ready to go out somewhere and he's wearing a suit and he has maybe frosted tips. And I had this real moment of like, wait, is this the 40s or like the 90s when the swing revival came? <laughs> I think that's a. I had the same thought. He wears this oversized suit that he looks like he could have stepped out of the 90s. And mm-hmm. it is that is a great point that there was a 40s big band revival happening well, I guess it happened a little bit before it, this. Just well, barely. I like ninety six, ninety seven. I think was like when it started. Swingers yeah. is ninety four, which is probably uh-huh. the early rumblings that really everyone was taking swing lessons right. in like ninety five, ninety six, and then it was dead. Like it, it, it really peaked very quickly yeah. there. So that was really interesting as well. Let's talk the the leads. Um, the cast is really wonderful. Naveen Andrews, who then we would see in a real pop culture in way in Lost, yes. uh, who's fantastic here. Kirsten so Scott charming. Thomas. Oh, so, so charming. charming. And also, talk about hair. Wow, what a good-looking uh, mane that dude had rolling <laughs> him. Binoche sporting what had be- what has become kind of her signature messy bob, 
mm-hmm. we saw in Chocolat and other other kind of places here, and then that finds his hair is just incredible, <laughs> just unbelievable stuff. And they spend a lot of time physically close to each other, like characters touching each other in different mm-hmm. locations. So like the hair is foregrounded. It's not just my obsession with people's hair. It's that plus that they're sand in the hair. We're putting all of like this is stuff they say. It's We're true. putting it's olive true. oil. We're putting kerosene in the hair to keep out the lice. You know, it's all over the place. Um, I was a little unexpected for the segment or unprepared for the segment on hair, but I'm here for this with you. You should probably know. Get ready. If there's an hair (laughs) angle, I'll take it. Um, Kirsten Scott Thomas, who's great. I think there's a world in which Fines is so dominant that the female lead would have a hard time standing up. But there's a certain severity to her. And they and probably Mangala saw it in um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, right? Mm-hmm. Where she's very tough and severe, but also very tender-hearted underneath. We ultimately learn that plays extremely well here. She's clearly not a match for Jeffrey. Also, no. another oh, in the she, long she's... another in the long life of tough beats for my Jeffreys. <laughs> Homeboy is getting eaten alive. Yeah, he doesn't stand a chance um, from the <laughs> beginning when they first hang. see each other. No. I mean, if you're Jeffrey Clifton, you've got Catherine in tow, who's out of your league to start with, which you have to know. He doesn't know this. And you see Yamashi there with his like two-day scrubble and the tan and the hair. You immediately turn around. You go back on the plane, Jeffrey. Get out of here. You got to go. Nothing yeah, my, but trouble for you. Like, how Ray Fiennes did not become like a Harrison Ford level heartthrob yeah. after this is a real question for me, <laughs> along with why is Kristen Scott Thomas not in everything it's a great forever? Point. That's a great and point. I think you're so right on that she was so well cast because that does require an actress that can stand up to how much just straight power um, mm-hmm. Fines is bringing. And the only other person that I could even imagine in that role, and I don't know how she would have done in it in 1996, is Kate Blanchett. Yeah, probably could have done it. Probably could have done it. I think there's... Kirsten Scott Thomas has no... And this is going to sound very bad. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, there's no like... There's a soft underbelly, but it's not a welcoming underbelly. Like, Kate Blanchett mm-hmm. can play very personable, right? Where Kirsten Scott Thomas can be vulnerable and open without seeming vulnerable somehow. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard in 90s. She's not very warm. Know. There's not no, a lot of not warmth to Kirsten warm. Scott yeah, Thomas. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And not a lot of warmth to Amashi either. So they're mm-hmm. well met in terms of weirdly bringing the heat with no warmth uh, somehow <laughs> uh, at the same time. Uh, let's see. What else to say? You know, one of the things that struck me at the time, and you were alluding to a little bit, watching the portrayal of their physical attraction is striking. I mean, it's Uh ravenous. (laughs) It's almost out of control. Like the first scene where she just shows up in his motel room and he just rips her, literally rips her straight down the middle. Like not in a way that's like instrumental. It's like the ripping is part of the point. Almost. Oh, yeah. And then he sews it up for her, like oh. the the afterglow scene there where she's like lounging in bed in his robe, watching him sew yes. her dress back together. And she gets a great line there where she's like, you know, I can't believe you can sew. And he says something like, I can't believe you can't. And she's like, well, a woman should never learn to sew. And if she does, she shouldn't Doesn't tell, tell anyone. Anybody. Yeah, that's really <laughs> like, good stuff. That's really good the, stuff. That scene between them and then the 
whole thing at the Christmas party where he tells her swoon and I'll catch you. And then they have this whole like illicit situation while there's a party going on in the courtyard outside. Bob walked in as that was happening. And I was like, if I had seen this when I was 16 years old, I would have been doomed or like I just shaped forever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of it. I mean, I think that the, the portrayal of their physical relationship is important because it suggests a kind of out of controlness that is the only thing that can really justifies the wrong word but makes sense that this is a destructive yes attraction right and it's beyond their ability to control it they know they both know they shouldn't be doing it oh yeah yeah and that i mean the anna karenina references alone tell you tell you that that they are aware of this that i think the adaptation does better than the book does is really how like out of their minds they are with Mm -hmm. the connection between them that they just like can't stop thinking about each other and they're taking all of these risks and you know it's it wouldn't be hard for a person to catch them and it's really not that difficult when Jeffrey figures is out figures that out that 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 has come together but just man that sizzle it's high the sizzle sizzle sizzle. is on high yeah we're not going to linger too much on it but come some i think my favorite stretch of the movie between them is before they actually get together when they're you know the really beginning when they she steps off the plane but picking up in full when she tells the story of candelas and and gaijis but then a couple of moments where amashi's like clifton goes back to cairo and he's like shouldn't you take her and he's like, he's trying to think of a reason that Clifton should, because he's like, mm-hmm. she can't be around. I can't be around yeah. her. We cannot be around. This is not. He's like, and then he tries it again when they come back to the hotel. And he goes, you should really go alone, Mrs. Clifton. And she's like, yes. don't. don't. And he's yeah. trying. He's trying. He, know, he, know, he knows <laughs> that that is and a burner that they're like, both going to burn on. And in the book, she just like turns to him at one moment and says, oh, I God. want you to ravish me. <laughs> yeah, they, that was too hot for the book it's... or something. I forgot <laughs> about that. And it's Whoa! like, I, right. There's, there's that bath scene after they first hook up. And I was yeah. thinking, I don't remember when Bridges of Madison County came out, but like 96, 98 around then might have been like an all time movie stretch for sexy bath scenes in movies. Great point. The bath there's... as the cinematic portrayal of like, intimacy where you're not actually like showing right. sex, right? You're yeah. naked, and you're together, you're vulnerable. That's interesting. I loved the scene before they officially hook up where it's like after this or after slash during the sandstorm where they're hiding in the car mm. in the desert and he's got a lot of sand in his hair and all on his face and stubble. And I have not devoted a lot of time to thinking about that lately. But she's like curled up kind of in his arms. Like nothing has mm. happened between them yet, but they're very physically close there and the Mingela gives him the um, monologue about the winds of the yes. world in that moment. And it's yeah, like, yeah. Are, are you kidding me? Like there, you just survived a sandstorm in the desert and you're like snuggled up with this hunk. And he's whispering to you about all the, the great winds the great of the winds. world. And then he just and, starts caressing her hair ever yeah, so just and, a little picking sand or just right. smoothing it and, a little bit you know this is not that far off from when we had that great car love scene in titanic where the hand smashes up against yep. the window and i had a like is that what's about to happen here are they going to do it in the car like that would be new from the book but i'm here for it it's there's tight just... quarters tight sandy quarters there <laughs> you know hmm. yeah uh let's see what's it like to watch this i you know movies until they become a stone cold classic, I think it, right now the current iteration of the English Patient is it's going to in fifteen years feel more like an all time classic movie because the filmmaking will feel less dated and more timeless. I think it feels a little 
dated and also because these char- these actors are still alive and we know them in a much mm-hmm. older form. So like you're just thinking that's young Juliette Binoche, that's young Ray Fiennes, that's young Kirsten Scott Thomas. Whereas you look at like something like Casablanca, you're not thinking that's young Humphrey Bogart. You're just thinking that's right. Humphrey Bogart, right? <laughs> and that true. this part of the pleasure of watching something like Casablanca, which I think this is an interesting analog for, um, is its retroness. It was current at the time, but you got to get past being dated to being timeless. And I think this over the course of time has a chance to do that. It feels more physical. There's no special effects here in terms mm-hmm. of computers. It's all very, the production design is very hands-on and tactile. Um, but I think there is an element that feels, it's not, it's not old enough to feel classic. So it just feels a little bit on the dated side on the whole that does nothing. I, this is me. This is my head, not my heart <laughs> talking, I should say at this particular moment. I think that's right. I didn't feel like I was, I didn't fall immediately into like, wow, this is one of the all-time great movies. How have I never seen Mm -hmm. this? But I didn't have an unenjoyable experience of it either. I just felt like I was watching a 25-year-old movie. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that it stands a good chance of becoming a classic. And I think it will age well. Um, There's not a lot that you could hang a, ooh, this is not going to age well. Like if, if you can go from 1996 to 2021 and we're not pointing out a bunch of things that didn't hang together, point. you know, there's a timeless quality to the book as well. So that, that makes sense to me. This is, I'm going to take us really lowbrow for a second, yes, but I go. feel compelled to say it. It's really weird seeing Ray Fiennes with his face in that kind of makeup after spending years seeing him as Voldemort. Interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> It was just weird. I was like, oh, that's what that is. Why does this seem familiar and strange to me at the same time? And it was because of that. That's connected to nothing else in the context of this episode. Ray Fiennes' two most iconic performances, he's unrecognizable as Ray Fiennes. That's a weird thing to say. And he's so good looking that he could be plenty recognizable as Ray Fiennes. And I mean, Shakespeare in love, but... Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that um, he's coming off of one of the performances that really, I mean, again, him as Amon Goth and Schindler's List, like the commandant mm, of the, mm-hmm. he was un like Daniel Day-Lewis stuff yes, going on. Yeah. And I think he got caught between being an actor, actor, like he came up through the Shakespearean rank and then being a leading man, like he's in The Constant Gardener and he's in some other stuff. And he's sort of fallen between the cracks. And now he's best known for being in like kind of sends up of sophisticated English people in the form of James James Bond and the uh, um, the Kingsman, right? Mm-hmm. Which are kind of caricatures of an old public school worldliness that he was actually representing unironically, even though he's Hungarian in this. I think it, it speaks to that. But he he's not he's not have a beer with enough guy enough to be Harrison Ford. Yeah, um, and he made or, different or choices Pitt. than a Daniel yeah. Day Lewis, right? Yeah, and he's not classically all American, good looking like a Pitt or sophisticated and charming like a Clooney. His own personal history. I don't know how much you did this. Is a little. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say the, the ways of the adulterous affair were not foreign to the elder real life Ray Fines. Got it. A, a notable encounter in a Qantas restroom, apparently, uh, <laughs> on board a plane. Well, that, high atop the list of things I'll be Googling later. Well, just to say, I mean, I guess he could have pulled off the in the sandstorm in the truck. You know, the, <laughs> if you, a Qantas air, uh, air, air bathroom is no more uh, yeah, encumbrant. Yeah, I didn't that. have any real questions about his ability there for that truck scene. <laughs> yeah, he could, he could figure it out. Uh, let's see. We talked about most everybody else. You're right. The, I, I like your point here about the – it's a little funnier. The movie's a little mm-hmm. funnier. A little lightness yeah, dropped in. The, um, the in funniest line in the book doesn't even make it into the movie. 
Which is? The, it's in the book when Kip and Hannah are like maybe going to go hook up and they're in the room with Almashi and he's got a hearing aid. Kip oh, yes. cuts the line to the hearing aid so they can sneak out of the room without Almashi waking up and sort of like winkingly looks at her and says, I'll rewire him in the morning. And I just funny. loved it. I think my favorite line, my, my my favorite funny line is both in the book and the movie where Omashi is like really undone by Clifton and there he's in the middle of their affair and he asks Maddox, what's the word? What do you call that, <laughs> that little hollow at yeah. the base of a woman's neck? And Maddox just goes, pull it together. <laughs> super sternal, yes. super sternal notch, by the way. It's a good, um, that's a good moment. That's a really good moment. Uh, anything else? Yeah, I think you're right. The sex scenes, just you don't have to write it. You just see it. And mm-hmm. then the the urgency, the animal attraction that eclipses their better judgment um, is really mm-hmm. interesting there. Anything worse? I think we talked about sidelining Kip. I think we can talk about the major differences um, between the book and the movie in terms of plotting. Mention that Caravaggio knows Hannah. He's like an uncle to her in the book which I was very upset by when I read the book. Cause I'm like, this makes no sense. Why well, you don't need oh. to do this. Huh. I was like, you know, it, it's cool that they don't know each other. That's part of the charm That's of true. all four of them coming together is that they're coming together because of circumstance, not because of pre-existing lines of connection. But I didn't know that it was because those were characters that Andaje was bringing forward from another book. So like, mm-hmm. if you're going to use the same characters, you can't ignore right. that they know each other. That's one, you know, another one that bothers me, and I don't know if this is something you picked up on in the book. Maddox kills himself because yes. of the onset of the war, right? Yes. He pulls a Virginia Wolf. It's like, I can't do this again. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Caravaggio relates that Ford shoots himself when he learns that Amashi has given the Germans the maps to North Africa. Yes, I did I pick like up that. on that. And I didn't like that either. I don't like that either. Part of what I think the book does well, and then they talk about betrayal explicitly, the betrayals in mm-hmm. war are, compa- are pale in comparison to the betrayals of love or something like that, or vice, you know, basically that the war betrayals are more, um, I don't know, the, the, one, the betrayals of love are worse than betrayals in, in war. And Amashi, I think in the, in the movie, they do a little better job of like explaining, again, the Hungarians are an Axis ally, even though he's not fighting for the Hungarians by the stretch of the imagination. It makes more sense that the British soldiers are treating him so badly. It's like, this is an Axis spy in all likelihood. We can't risk it. But their mistreatment of him when he's begging for the truck, and he's like, the only way I can get back to her is to give what I have, right? To make sort of an O. Henry deal with the devil, whatever. Mm-hmm. We understand it, even if we know it's wrong. I think yes. that's one of those things that goes on. And it doesn't feel like Maddox's character for that to be the thing that undoes him. Um, so there's one. Yeah, I agree. And especially because Maddox is not unaware that Almashi is already in a morally yeah. questionable place with this right. affair that he's conducting. You don't immediately go from there to assuming that he's going to give maps away to the Germans. But Maddox has picked up on this relationship and the power there and I don't you're think never going to come visit us in Dorset yeah I don't think he would have been surprised to hear that mm-hmm. under that kind of duress a, a person would make that kind of choice it makes him it's emotionally correct even if it's morally or ethically wrong yeah, yeah. Um, other notable differences um, I think it's a wonderfully again a scene that works better on film than could work in the book is when Kip rings up this pulley system yeah um, to show Hannah, the upper reaches of this chapel and the paintings that are up there. Like it's its own mm-hmm. courtship. 
and, sequence that look that really works beautifully well. It looks great on screen still, even. And today. and right before that, when he has turned snail shells into little yep. candles right. to lure her out, I found that enchanting to read about. But actually seeing it, yes. you know, it's a, that's a swoony moment of this is mm-hmm. really romantic. Yeah, it's rose it's rose petals without being rose the cliche mm-hmm. of rose petals, right? Which yeah. is I think interesting to think about here. I think the other major difference for me that really matters and comes as a surprise if you encounter, well, really either first, because is how they end, the end mm-hmm. of the stories here. Um, at the end of the book, the the euthanasia-assisted suicide, it doesn't happen. It's not right. there. Um, for all we know, Amashi is still alive when yeah. this book trails off, He's which is fascinating. visiting uh, Catherine in his mind. In his mind, yeah. And... Kip and Hannah separate because the world will not let them be in this mm-hmm. oasis of connection, I guess, to, to pick yeah. up on the book's own metaphors. Um, but they imagine each other in the future and they imagine each other's lives of, of happiness. And I, I should say, interestingly, um, cliche is not the wrong, but a familiar kind of nuclear heterosexual settling mm-hmm. down. He's a doctor. She's doing something. They both have kids. They seem to be happily coupled. Um or they're imagining that for each other. It's a little unclear to me what's happening. Is that is that Andaje saying that's what happens? Is that what they hope is happening for each other? I don't know. Do you have a sense of what's going it on? It was there? unclear to me yeah. as well. And I really liked the ambiguity. I, do I love this about, I love it when a writer trusts readers to sit in an open question like that and to just leave it open. Mm. Um, and that was I did not love the assisted suicide ending of the book um, just because I think it robs the audience of getting to have those questions and getting to wonder. I think there's a way to shoot this where you wonder, is this what they're really telling us happened or is this just one possible ending? You know, you could portray it on screen without making it seem definite and it, it, it just felt like an easier ending to me to also 1996 we're having a lot of cultural conversations about assisted that's suicide right. yep. and that's like in the water and i read Mingela say that he thinks the pieces of the story and this is honest and probably true of anybody who does a work like this the pieces of the story that he pulled out and focused on for the adaptation say just as much about himself as they yeah. do about the book or about on dot j and and anybody else connected to it and so i like i get it how that ended up there um i don't think it's the right storytelling noted i don't think it serves um all the other things that are happening uh, in this book or in this movie as well as ondache's open question ending i like it a little better than you do for this reason is that we they all come to the villa with their own baggage right and hannah's is she cannot connect to anyone because she's afraid of losing them right she's Mm -hmm. in here the move is you can care about someone enough that losing them is not the worst thing in the world that can happen. Yeah. Right. They, both in, th- both in the form of Kip and in the form of um, the count himself. I think the count himself, one thing that's happening is he, he needs to get the story out like Herodotus. He cannot let mm-hmm. the story of him and Catherine Clifton go with him. So he's, you know, that little bit of long I have is getting smaller every day. As he says, once he's gotten the story out, he's ready. Like the thing keeping him alive is this, <laughs> idea that he needs to tell the truth like he can't let Caravaggio think that he killed her in the way that Caravaggio thinks that happened so it makes a certain degree and it's also it is a more crowd pleasing is a weird thing to say about assisted suicide but it makes a certain more a more conventional emotional sense for her to do that though I agree with you I think I prefer the book and the ending but I I kind of like that they both exist weirdly I should say this is one of those weird differences I kind of like them 
that they exist side by side in the It's an interesting question interesting. Yeah. to have. Yeah, I think I like that we got to see Hannah make that kind of compassionate choice for him mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, and that it does make emotional sense, as you're saying, that once he's gotten the story out, he's ready to go. Um, I, I assumed after the end of the book, he dies relatively quickly. He's not like a, he doesn't have long, him. right? I mean, he's not hanging out no, there no, for no. long. But, you know, you know, ambiguous endings are not most people's favorite to books or movies. So I get it. <laughs> like yeah. That seems like the kind of thing that even if it had been ambiguous in the first cut, the studio would have been like, people are not going to get this. Make it definite. Um, okay. We're running a little long. Let's, you have, oh, yeah. I need to talk about Willem Dafoe. <laughs> and I think, I don't want to prime, but I'd be, you you go and then I'll uh, we'll see if we're on the same or related pages about Willem Dafoe. There's as, this um, David I mean, Caravaggio a name too absurd I, not to be real. Yeah, I love Willem Dafoe, but there is this like electric feral quality to him that was not what I pictured mm. for Caravaggio for this you know thief who's been tortured who like is showing up in this place searching for morphine he's just like more frenetic than i was ready for i came to like him a lot more over the course of the two hours and 42 minutes in that role and in my dream recasting of this movie for 2021 it's jeremy strong in the from succession in the ray fines <laughs> role <laughs> and then uh K- kieran culkin in the willem dafoe role doing that sort of twitchy mm-hmm. thing but it was i just thought that was such an interesting choice you know i couldn't dive far enough back into 1996 movie stars to decide who i think it should have been instead of willem dafoe but it was just a different energy for that character than i was expecting I mean, it's interesting that we're doing this this week because Willem Dafoe's having, spoiler alert, sorry, for Spider-Man Homecoming, I think, if you know, Mm -hmm. but like he's cast as the Green Goblin and there's a reason he's cast as the Green Goblin. Like his face, the the thing that makes Willem Dafoe one of the all-time character actors is that his face presents you one face, Mm -hmm. but then his actual demeanor, delivery, warmth, intelligence tells you a different story and that like sweet and sour element is really interesting and i think that's what they were going for here but i agree with you he's got no thumbs he's a thief he's doing drugs and he's got willem dafoe face it's just a lot like he's really can be overpowering and it takes a little while i think for the movie to tame him well enough where he can fit in um and he goes on his own journey right to like basically i love that scene where he's like uh you know finally the count has confessed the truth which is he did give the map to the germans and it did lead to and those photographs did lead to Willem Dafoe getting his fingers cut off, but ultimately Willem Dafoe's like, it's also not your fault, you know, it's, yeah. or I can't blame you. I can't kill you now. And it's the morning and it's all over. And you really take that element from his menacing, his threateningness to a gentleness at the end, but it does, it does maybe overpower some of the scenes. I, I think I agree with you in that regard, though. It's hard for me to imagine too, who would have worked there. Yeah. We talked about Colin Firth. Um, boy, great look. Naveen Andrews is great. You have feelings about Binoche. We haven't spent a lot of time on Binoche. Yeah, okay. Not really about Binoche. She's yes. wonderful. The the Hannah character in the book is 20. And oh. there's something to that character being like so young, so young and so damaged by having experienced what she's yeah. experienced so young that I think there's room for this would have been interesting with a younger actress who has mm. less life experience and less weight to 
her presence than Binoche does. But I loved Binoche. I thought she was wonderful. And if I had not known that about the Hannah character from the book, I would have had no questions about it. Yeah, she plays, because she's like 32 at the time of the filming. So she's considerably older, though she has a, she has this interesting quality of girlishness and, and wisdom that goes on at the same time with Binoche. Even as an older actress now, there's still a girlishness to her as well that she can kind of do both. That makes it feel interesting. I, I agree with you that the Hannah of the book feels a lot more, um, whatever the nurse equivalent of shell-shocked mm-hmm. is, than, than Binoche does, even though we get much more shell- shelling in, yeah. in the, the film than we do. Yeah, traumatized is the right word for it. Um, yeah, Demi Moore is Kirsten Scott. Like, what ifs? <laughs> the note yeah. that they got is like Demi. I mean, that make you know, there's the bad version of this where Demi Moore yeah, is I, Catherine Clifton. Yeah, I read this interview with Kristen Scott Thomas from like 1997. And she said, you know, the studio really wanted Demi Moore for my role. And mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein stepped in and saved the day. And it's like, oh, boy, that's a sentence that you don't hear anymore. Yeah. But he was right about this. Um, She's wonderful. We've got three minutes left. <laughs> Meat on the bone for another crack. There was a time I would have said no. I think the limited series, six to eight part limited series, gives me other thoughts yes. these days. And it is in development at the BBC for just that. I saw that. And that will be one of my complaints about the movie is not anything the movie does, but how much it's overshadowed the book. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that happens to a book, once there's multiple adaptations, then the book is more the star, right? Because... The book can never be one of one, where a filmic adaptation then becomes one of several, right? So that it recenters, it recenters the text itself as the thing of which everything else is just a manifestation of. So I, I wonder, and I, you know, I can see a different world. They would need to make different choices in order to make it worth doing. But in those different choices, it would then kind of make Mingala's version of the English patient just a version of the English mm-hmm. patient, where right now the movie is the English patient. Does that make sense? I feel like yeah. I'm talking in circles. No, <laughs> no, I think so too. I think yeah. a 2021, 2022 version of this that sits in that limited series format and probably does the thing that Lost really popularized for yeah. contemporary right. TV, but like The Leftovers did it, Yellow Jackets is doing it right now um, on sh- uh, Showtime, and I think it, we're going to see a lot of it in Station Eleven also of mm-hmm. here's the present, and then let's spend some time going back to the past, and then you start the, in the present again, and then the next episode goes into someone else's past, and it would let them flesh out yeah. the Kip and Hannah storylines more on screen or give them the kind of um, time on screen that they get on the page, um, just a more balanced presentation of these characters. I don't know that it's a love story if they, of this variety, if you do it as a limited series. And I would love to, I would love to see that. I would love to see, I guess, a more, um, faithful to the book adaptation attempt. Although Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't think this is a bad adaptation. It's a smart way to adapt the most easily adaptable, easily translatable elements of the book onto... But it has an angle, right? An angle that's not necessarily just kind of portraying the book as, quote-unquote, faithfully as possible. It's making choices, has a point of view. I think for the time, the actors, you're trying to make a commercial property, hugely clever, hugely Mm -hmm. successful adaptation as these things go, just from a... Um, objective point of view. Rebecca, thank you so much. I really enjoyed (laughs) this and uh, speaking for your time and uh, wonderful to have a chance to talk about a great property and a a great book. I think that's, you know, the, the, both of them won the the award that they can win, like of of the top Mm -hmm. in their field. I think the other thing that's rare is if you love the movie, there's something for you in the book 
Yes. You know, you get what you like about the movie plus some other stuff. I think that's fascinating. And if you like the book, the movie has an... So they really kind of speak back and forth to each other in a way that's not always true of an adaptation. That's even a, even a good one is not always true. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not always happy to have read the books that we read when we're comparing them to popular movies <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for this Shout project. Out to Field of Dreams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a specifically yeah. pointed at Field of Dreams. Um, but I'm really, really glad to have, I think I would have gotten to this book eventually, but I'm really, really glad to have gotten to it, to have gotten to it with someone who can give a soliloquy on Herodotus. And now I know what I was missing when I was 14, not watching Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 